You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. you, if you will, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. And if you don't know where 1 Kings is, just you can use your, your table of contents in the front of your Bible. No shame in that. And, and while you're turning there, I just want to remind you that this Wednesday, uh, we kick off uh, the Lenten season. It's a season of Lent. It's a season that uh, Christians all across the world have celebrated uh, really since the 4th century. And the uh, Lenten season is a time where we become aware of our own brokenness, our own humanity. It's a time of repentance. It's a time of searching our souls. It's a time where, really, we are preparing for Easter. If you grew up in the church, I think Easter can really be lost on us at times. We can really take it for granted. Um, but we really don't want to just live, um, or we don't want to just celebrate Easter one day a year. Like, we want to, at the Crossing Church, live as a Easter people, resurrected people. And one of the ways we prepare for Easter is a season of Lent, where we join Jesus in this kind of 40-day period in the wilderness where we pick up our cross. And, and there are three things specifically that the church does during the Lenten season. Uh, we pray, uh, we fast, and we give. And so we pray. Uh, this is a time over 40, a 40-day period leading up to Easter where our prayer should be even more intense. And prayer, uh, really, if you want to know like what is prayer, it's just a conversation with God. That's all it is. And just like if you want to develop a healthy relationship with your spouse or a friend, you got to have back-and-forth communication. The same is true when it comes to your relationship with God. Um, uh, Thomas Merton is a monk who was once asked, how can I grow in my prayer life? And I, I love his response. He said, just spend time doing it. Uh, that's really the best way you can grow at prayer. Um, the old cliche is love is spelt T-I-M-E. If you want to grow in your love relationship with God, spend time in prayer. And Lent is a season where we do that more than ever. It's also a season where we fast. It's a season where we intentionally try to cut some things out of our life that maybe we've been a little bit too attached to, some things we've depended on too much for joy or satisfaction and fulfillment. Uh, fasting is a way that we get our whole body involved in this spiritual practice where we starve our flesh for the purpose of feeding on Christ. And so um, I would encourage you this year, my plan is to, uh, for 40 days, other than on Sundays, because Sundays don't count during Lent, but my, uh, my plan is to fast from added sugar and social media. Maybe something completely different for you, but I would encourage you to begin to pray about that right now. God, what is something you want me to give up starting this Wednesday in the Lenten season? And then also, Lent is a time where we give. Um, if you've already been given to the church, great. Uh, find a way to give even beyond that. It's a time where if you've not been tithing, start tithing. If you already do that, it's a time where you maybe carry some cash around your pocket and you look for opportunities to give to the poor with no questions asked. It's just a time where we become more generous. And again, it's a way to prepare for the Lenten season. Now, uh, with that, this Wednesday, we're going to be kicking off uh, uh, Lent with our Ash Wednesday service. We did that last year, had a great turnout for it. I would encourage you, if you've not already done so, sign up for that service. Links have already gone out. Uh, we'll send some more sign-up links out through social media, uh, through probably your missional communities. You can get on the church app, and you can sign up that way. Um, but it's a time where you'll come together. If you've never been in an Ash Wednesday service, uh, we'll sing a few songs. I'll give a short little homily. And then if you want, you don't have to do this, but you can come forward, and you can receive ashes on your forehead in the shape of a cross. And the whole reason for that is the ashes remind us 
that from dust we come and to dust we will return. Because we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world, every single one of us in this room will one day die. And the Bible is very clear. If you want to live a good life, you need to live with the end in mind that you one day will die and spend an eternity somewhere. And so the ashes remind us that we will die, but it's in the form of a cross to remind us that because of the death of Jesus, we don't have to fear death. Amen? And so uh, that is this Wednesday, 615. Child care will be provided. would encourage you to be there for that. Now, um, I had planned to preach something completely different this morning. I was going to preach Luke chapter 4. Uh, because Lent is all about joining Jesus in the wilderness. I was going to preach on Jesus in the wilderness. Um, but here's the deal. Everywhere I turned this week, I continued to see people talking about Asbury University and what's happening there. Most of you know my wife and I went with our kids to Asbury University on Tuesday. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me, are you going to talk about Asbury even this morning? Originally, I was not going to talk much about it. I was like, if people want to know, we can talk about it in the hallway. I wasn't going to talk about it from the stage. Um, but people kept asking, and everywhere I turn, it's like Asbury, 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 my emails, Asbury, social media feed, Asbury, people's talking about revival. And so I just thought, you know, clearly there seems to be a hunger for the Lord. People want to experience more of God than what they've been experiencing. And so I thought, you know, what better way to maybe spend our time than to talk about what revival looks like and what are some things we can do to posture ourselves as a people to experience uh, I think a unique move of God that is happening at Asbury, but actually already beginning to spread out in different parts of our country. And to do that, I want to look in 1 Kings 18, and just to set the context for you, uh, because of their disobedience, because of their sin, Israel has been in a three-year drought. And so think about this, for three years, uh, these people have experienced little to no rain, and therefore, uh, they're not just living in a drought, they're living in a land of death. And this is what sin does. The Bible is clear in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. And that's what we see happening right here. Because of Israel's sin, because of the disobedience, they're not just in a drought. They are in a season of death. They are both physically and spiritually in a dry and hard and depressing season where little to nothing is flourishing. And my guess is today for some of you, you're like, that pretty much sums up my life right now. For some of you, if you're being honest, you're in a sad season, a dry season, a depressing season, a season where you don't feel the presence of God, a season where you see little to no activity or life uh, at all that is, you know, kind of coursing through your veins. And if that is where you are, that's where the people of Israel are in our text. And in verse 21, I love this, because Elijah is a man of holy discontentment. Because Elijah is not apathetic, because he believes that God alone is worthy of worship and that there is way more of God to be had than what the people of Israel are personally experiencing. In verse 21, he calls them to make a decision. And I want you to look at this with me. He goes to the people and he asks this question. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him him. In other words, it's time to make a decision. It's time to draw a line in the sand. It's time to decide, like, am I going to go all in on this God thing or am I going to go in on something else? Am I going to worship the one true God? Am I going to worship a different God? Am I going to surrender my life to God? Am I going to surrender my life uh, to this God? And I believe it's the same message that God has for you and me today. For some of you in the room, you have given God your afterlife, or so you think, but you have not given him this life. 
You have not surrendered everything to Jesus. You have not brought all of your life under his lordship. You're still picking and choosing parts of the Bible that you want to believe. You're still living a life of compromise. You're still kind of flirting with certain sins. Like the people of Israel, you are half in and half out. And maybe you want to worship God here on a Sunday. I mean, that's why you're here. But on a Monday, you you bow down to the altar of some other little G God. And maybe for some of you, like you, you, you bow at the God of pleasure. You begin to believe that a life well lived is a life where you basically just do whatever you want, whenever you want. That if it looks good or it feels good or it tastes good, that you should go after it. And that's why you get mad if anybody asks you to do anything that you don't want to do. Because pleasure has become your God. For others, maybe you are bowing at the altar of popularity and you begin to believe that if I'm going to live the happy life, then I need everyone else to be happy with me. I can't be okay unless you're okay with me. And so maybe for some of you, like people have become really big and God has become really small. For others in here, maybe you're bound at the altar of possessions and you believe the lie that the more stuff I have, the happier I will be. And yet the more stuff you get, the more you want and the emptier you are. For others, maybe you're bowing at the idol of, of performance and you're believing the lie that failure absolutely is not an option, that, that, that what I do determines my worth. And if that is where you are today, listen, God is inviting you to trust him, to repent of trusting in a false God that cannot save you, sustain you, or satisfy you, and to submit your entire life, to place it all in his hands. This is Elijah's invitation to the people of Israel, and as a way of helping them make a decision, he says, here's what we're going to do. He says, I'm going to issue you a challenge. He says, prophets of Baal, I want you to take this bull, and I want you to put it on this altar and sacrifice it to your God, and if your God consumes the sacrifice with fire, then we'll know he's the one true God. But then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my own sacrifice, my own bull, and I'm going to put it on an altar, and I'm going to offer that up to God. And if he causes fire to fall down on that sacrifice, then we'll know that, that my God is the one true God. And so the prophets were like, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And you can go and actually read about this on your own in verse 22 through 29. I won't read it to you. But basically the prophets of Baal, they prepare their sacrifice. They put it on the altar, and they begin to cry out to God, God, bring the fire, consume the sacrifice. But nothing happens. So they begin to yell more, God, bring the fire, consume the sacrifice. Nothing happens. They actually begin to dance around the altar. It's a very silly scene. And at this point, you can go read this on your own later, like, like Elijah enters and just like some of like the greatest spiritual smack talk of all time. He just looks at him and he's like, hey, maybe your God's using the bathroom or something. Like maybe he's still asleep. Like yell louder, then maybe he will hear you. And it's just like, they they just get into a rage at this point. It says literally they begin to cut themselves with sword and spears. Like they are losing their minds. And yet, despite the fact that they are yelling, despite the fact they are dancing and now bleeding, look what it says in verse 29. 1 Kings 18 verse 29. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. After five years of working with Muslims, this past week, we saw our first Muslim convert to Christianity. And so... Uh, she'll actually be here in the second service. We'll baptize her next week. Radical conversion happened right in my office. 27-year-old girl, a girl grew up in Kenya, has given her life to the Islamic faith and has lost everything now uh, as a result of deciding to follow Jesus. 
But one of the things she said to me in my office was she said, you know, uh, I am so excited to know that I now have a God who will listen to me. She said, my whole life I've given to the God of Islam and never, not once in 27 years did I ever feel heard. That's what's happening right here. You cannot cry out to a false God and expect to be heard. The false God's not listening. That's what we see happening right here. They cried and they yelled and they did all this religious activity to try to get God to respond, but it was the wrong God. And I think that's where a lot of people are in the religious South today. Man, you're working so hard and you're trying so hard and you're making these sacrifices and doing these things. Like, why will God not respond? Why will he not speak? Well, maybe it's the wrong God. Elijah steps up to the plate and he says, let me try this. And he actually, in verse 30 through 39, we'll read this in just a minute, but he offers his sacrifice, cuts up the bull, puts it on the wood, pours the water on top of it, and then he cries out, God, bring the fire. Immediately, God brings the fire, consumes the sacrifice, and the people who watched that day all fell on their faces before God and began to cry out to him. And though there's a lot in there that we could pull out for our purposes today, I just want you to see three things that must be true if we want to see a powerful move of God. Three things that must be true if we want to see the fire of God fall on us in such a way that it doesn't just transform us, but it transforms our entire city. And what I want you to see is first is this. If we're going to see a revival, if we're going to see a powerful move of God, we must first be unified around the altar of God. In verse 30, if you look with me, it says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been broken and torn down. In verse 31, it says, Elijah took the 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. At this point in Israel's history, they were a divided nation. But here is a sign of unity. Elijah calls everyone to the altar. He places 12 stones around this altar as a sign of, uh, of the people coming together in unity to worship the one true God. And in doing so, what Elijah is realizing here is that if we're going to see this drought come to an end, if we're going to see flourishing, if we're going to see revival, if we're going to see God do a great work, it is going to start with us setting aside our differences It is going to start with us setting aside our preferences and putting God where he belongs, which is front and center in our own lives. You know, one of the things that grieves my heart is how divided we are right now as a country. So divided. We have divided hearts. We have divided homes. We have divided churches. And one of the things I loved about my time in Asbury was that there was no division on that campus. Um, the people that were in that chapel were in perfect unity. I don't know if I've ever experienced anything like it. Um, it didn't matter who was sitting next to you. You didn't even know the people sitting next to you. You'd never seen them in your life. And yet, despite the fact you did not know them, it didn't matter their color, it did not matter their age, it did not matter their gender, it did not matter their political affiliation, it didn't matter what nation they came from, There was no agenda in that room except everybody was coming to sit in the presence of God. That's why people drove there. They didn't drive there for a program. They didn't drive there for some sort of good like TED Talk with Jesus at the end of it. They didn't show up because they thought the coffee would be good. There was actually no coffee there, by the way. Nothing. 
They didn't show up to be entertained. They showed up and they thought, if I can just get one minute in the presence of God, that will change everything. And so there was unity. And I just want you to know, like, if we're going to see a mighty move of God, we have, we have got to set aside some of our petty differences. We've got to stop holding on to bitterness and rivalry and selfish ambition and personal preferences and political agendas that all are just getting in the way of what I believe God wants to do in our midst. And so we want to see a move of God. There has to be a unity around the altar of God. Secondly, if we're going to see a revival of God, we need to trust in the supernatural power of God. In verse 33, if you read with me, it says that he, talking about Elijah, he arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time. He ordered and they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. What a stupid idea. I mean, if you're in a drought, why would you pour out your most precious commodity, which is water? And actually, in doing so, you're stacking the odds against yourself. Have you ever tried to light wood on fire when it's wet? I have literally set a whole field on fire before because it was so dry. Um, and then at the same time, I've tried to light a, just a fire pit in my backyard with wet wood and couldn't do anything, even though I tried. Like, it's almost impossible to light wood that is wet. This is such a ridiculous move by Elijah. And as I thought about this this morning, I was reminded of this truth that if we want to see revival, we need to realize that it often will not happen exactly the way we think it should happen. It won't happen because of you. It won't happen because of me. It won't happen because we did something just the right way or we figured something out. Revival does not happen because we have the right program. It does not happen because we have the right personality or the right kind of preaching, but rather revival happens because of the power of God. And oftentimes it's not super practical. That is not a practical move on Elijah's part, but what he wants people to know is something we all have to know today, that revival is not brought about through the power of man, but through the power of God. One of the things that struck me at Asbury, one of the first things that struck me is, you know, I stress out almost every week over how perfect the experience has to be here on a Sunday morning. From the hospitality team, to the coffee, to the kids ministry, to the preaching, to the music, to the lights, to the temperature in the room. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on. All of that stuff is in my mind every single Sunday. I'll tell you, Asbury University is not impressive. No offense to them. The people leading worship, not impressive. They weren't. They didn't even have the guitar hooked up. You, could, you didn't even hardly hear the guitar. They didn't have lyrics on a screen, no pages printed out. 90% of the songs that I sung the day that I was there, I didn't even know the lyrics. I, didn't, I never even heard the song before. Never even heard it. And they have these college students who just continue to lead. And what's incredible to me is now <clears throat> there's all these Christian celebrities who are flocking to Asbury and everybody wants to be a part of this. And if I was the, you know, the person heading up this revival, I'd be like, sweet. Now we got like, like, you know, like a, a big name in house. Like, let's have that guy preach. Or now we've got like Chris Tomlin here. Like, let's put him on the stage. And I love the move that the Spirit has done to where basically he is told who was leading this revival, don't put any of the big names on stage. Don't put any of the impressive people on stage. 
Because what God loves to do is he loves to choose the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong. It is in our weakness that God's strength is made complete. God loves to do things through ordinary, messed up, unimpressive people because then only he can get the credit for what has been done. And so we need to be a people that realize that. We don't need a bunch of resources. We don't need necessarily better leaders. We don't necessarily need a better kids ministry or a greater program. You don't need better music, better lighting, none of that stuff. Revival happens because of the supernatural work of God. And so if we're going to see revival, we need to be unified around the altar of God. We must trust in the supernatural power of God. And then lastly, I would say this, we must contend in prayer for a work of God. In verse 36, it says, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward, and what did he do? He prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Yesterday, uh, my wife was, was gone uh, part of this weekend. She went and ran a race with her mom in Batesville. And so I, I, uh, I watched the kids this week. At first, I told my wife, I said, yeah, I'll babysit the kids. She said, it's not babysitting the kids if it's your kids. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so I took them to Ultimate Air yesterday uh, because I'm that good of a dad. And so uh, 300 really, really, really germy kids all over the place bounce around. I was like, this is a form of hell. And like, I think. <laughs> and so, um, went to ultimate air and then we had to run a target after that. And my kids found this pool toy that they couldn't do without. Um, and they came up to me and they were like, dad, can we get this, this toy for the pool? And I was like, absolutely not. It's February. Like, I'm not even thinking about the pool. Like, I still got a cover on it. But they just continued over and over and over and over. And eventually, honestly, they just wore me down. And I bought the toy. Uh, I don't even really know what it is, to be honest. Probably a complete waste of money. But I bought it. And as I thought about that yesterday, I thought, man, like, their asking is a great example of contending prayer. Like, we need to be a people who refuse to take no for an answer. We need to be a people who don't just ask God one time, God, would you change my heart? God, would you fix this problem? God, would you repair my marriage? God, would you free me from addiction? Or God, would you bring revival, pray at one time, and bam, okay, he didn't do it, I'm done. Like, we need to continue to ask and ask and ask and ask. In the words of Jesus, contending prayer looks like the persistent widow who keeps annoying the judge until the judge gives her justice. It looks like the man who goes to his neighbor's house in the middle of the night and continues to knock until the neighbor comes to the door just so he can get a piece of bread. Like, that's what contending prayer looks like. Contending prayer is persistent, and it is powerful, and no matter who you are, this is something that you can actually do. I love the passage in James chapter 5, and I'll just read it to you. In James 5, verse 17... Listen to this as it's read over you. It says, Elijah, remember we've been reading about Elijah and what he just did. Elijah was a human being just like you. James five seventeen. 
Elijah was a human being just like you. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. But again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. I love that. Elijah was a man, an ordinary human being, just like you. And just like me. And because he contended with God in prayer, because he refused to take no for an answer, because he prayed earnestly, God heard his prayers and he answered. And I love how right here in verse 18, it says, as a result, what happened? The earth produced its crops. So it goes from famine to flourishing. Life begins to burst forth. And what I was thinking about this morning is, man, if God could do that through one ordinary man contending, what could he do if all the people in this room begin to contend? God's prayer changes things. And I don't understand how that all works, but I know that it works because I see it in the scriptures and I've seen it in my own life. It's what we see right here. Elijah, in our story in 1 Kings 18, he cries out to God. Fire falls from heaven. He prays. Rain begins to come down. Life bursts forth. And so, man, like, my prayer is just this today, and I'm almost done, and I'll let the band come back up here shortly. My hope is just that we will be a people who hunger for more of God, who say, I'm not content with the amount of God I have in my life. And as a result, we'll be a people who say, like, yeah, let's be unified around the altar of God. Like, and I don't mean, like, literal altar, like, right here. I mean, like, let's be a people who come together and, like, cry out in worship. Let's sing even when I don't feel like singing. Let's raise my hands if I don't feel like raising my hands. Let's get on my knees if I don't feel like getting on my knees. Like, let's pour our heart out in praise to God. Let's be a people who stop trusting in our own power and think, well, we're not that impressive. God, great. If we're not that impressive, even better. Even better. Let's trust in the power of God. Let's contend in prayer. Let's keep asking, seeking, and knocking. Let's pray for God to bring revival. I don't know if what's happened in Asbury's revival. I have no idea. History, you don't name something a revival until after it's over. And whatever's happening there is not over. I don't know what's happening there. All I know is it's beautiful, and I hope it happens here. And so let's pray for that. Let's pray for our own hearts. Let's pray for our own homes, for our own marriages, for our schools, for our entire city. Let's pray for God to bring revival. And if you're like, well, what exactly does revival look like? What does it look like? Well, let me just tell you, I never saw anybody jumping over a pew in Asbury. I didn't see anything, anybody like passing out, like, you know, falling out, like slain in the spirit. And I was saying, that stuff can't happen. It was actually pretty orderly, like pretty calm for the most part. I think when we think of revivals, that's what we think of everybody gets worked up in a frenzy. And that can certainly happen. But I think more than anything, when we see revival, there are two things that we see. We saw it in Asbury and we see it right here in this story. When revival comes, there's two things. There is conviction and there's conversion. There is conviction. In verse 39, it says they fell prostrate before God. They fell prostrate before him. They got low before God. When, when you are confronted with the holy presence of God, you know what happens? You become undone. You begin to realize you're not as much of a hot shot as you thought you were. 
you begin to realize that, man, I still haven't arrived, that, man, geez, like I'm still just as sinful and broken as maybe as I even was whenever Christ first broke into my life, and I still need the mercy of God just as much today as I ever have. Think about Isaiah when he sees the holy presence of God. What's the first thing he said? He didn't just be like, cool, homeboy, awesome, good to spend time with you. No, he says, I'm dead. That was his first response, and God had to remind him, no, 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 I'm not here to kill you. Like, that's the response when you enter into the holy presence of God. There is a sweet conviction of sin. I saw this in Asbury. Um, when we were there, there were times where just straight-up public confession in a room with people, I don't know how many people were there, 500, 600 were in this room, uh, definitely more than this. People would just stand up and start giving public confession of sin because it felt like a safe place. It felt like the right place to do it because you were in the loving presence of God. And so people would stand up and confess sin, and then the church would just say back to them, and I say the church is in the universal church, they would say back to them, the blood of Jesus forgives you. The blood of Jesus forgives you. The blood of Jesus forgives you. It's incredible to see. I saw one 80-year-old man in front of me stand up, 80-year-old. Think about the humility in that. Stands up, and he said, I just want to confess I've not loved my wife well. And then he looked at his wife, and he said, I'm so sorry, I've not loved you well. And he just began to cry, and they embraced, and everybody just said, the blood of Jesus forgives you. That's healing. It's powerful. The Spirit of God comes. There is conviction of sin. Not flipping anymore about the stuff that we've been doing or not doing that we know God has called us to do. There's a conviction of sin, but then also not only is there conviction, but when the Holy Spirit comes, there's conversion. Radical conversion. Change happens. In verse 39, it says that these people who are all watching, they begin to cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is not wishy-washy. This is not apathy. This is all in. And that's my prayer for us as a church. That we will be a people who go all in, a people who turn from our sin, that we turn from trusting in dead, lifeless idols, and we'll turn to trusting completely in Jesus Christ, the Savior and the Sustainer and the Satisfier of our souls. And guys, that's what revival is all about, by the way. Everybody's talking about, it seems like they want revival, they want revival. Listen, please hear me, and I'm, I'm, I'm done. More than revival is about experiencing God's power. It is about experiencing God's presence. More than revival being about experiencing miracles, it is about experiencing the Messiah. The one who has made it possible for us to enter into the presence of God without being obliterated by his presence. And how did Jesus make it possible? Because he would actually place himself on the altar. He would become consumed by the fire of God. He would go to the cross and he would shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can now experience the forgiveness and the freedom that we need so that we can enter into God's presence so that right now you can experience God just as much as the people in Asbury are experiencing God. Jesus has made that possible for you.